Cool. Uh, we are continuing in our series in uh, 1 John, John's uh, first letter, and we're going to be, uh, Lord willing, wrapping up next week. So this is the penultimate uh, message in the book of 1 John, and I'm, I'm really excited about the text that we're going to be uh, looking at this morning, and there are a few reasons for that. The first is that John loves to repeat himself uh, in his letter again and again for exactly the same reason that I repeat myself to my kids, because it takes a while for the message to, to go in. But today's text is um, an example of that with like double underline and flashing neon lights on a billboard on William Nickel Drive. Because not only does John repeat the kind of main themes and ideas of his letter in today's text, but it's kind of like he's repeating all the major themes of the New Testament in the six or seven verses that we have today. And this is, I think when you kind of see it all in close proximity like this, sequentially, cumulatively, the, the kind of impact is almost explosive. It certainly was for me when I was prepping. The second reason that I'm really excited about today is that it's almost like John hired the DeLorean from Back to the Future and, uh, and came to 2020 and kind of logged all the anxieties and stresses that bug us in 2020, and then he went back and he wrote these verses as a kind of answer to, to those things. So this is an incredibly kind of relevant and modern text. And then thirdly and finally, and I think maybe most importantly, the reason that I'm really excited about uh, today's text is that as I was preparing and praying and working on my structure, uh, I found that I could structure this message not into three points, not into five points, but into seven points that all start with a P. Which is, I mean, you got to understand how amazing that feels when, when that happens. But I know some of you are probably feeling a bit anxious now because you're thinking in your head, you know, okay, Pete normally goes like 40 minutes with three points. So what are we in for here? Like an hour and a half or so. Let's relax. Hour 15 max. Okay. It's a fairly long text. And we're going to be reading from the ESV together. Please follow along if you can. 1 John 5, starting at verse 13. Okay, it goes like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. There is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God, that's Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. As you can see, there's a lot packed in there. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much uh, for, for the truth that you, that you keep on telling us in the Scriptures that you are a living, speaking God. And that when we open your Word together and when we study your Word together and when your Word gets preached, Lord, that you promise to come and be present to bless uh, what is going on in that time. And so we, we just want to welcome you in now, Lord. We want to say that our hearts are open and receptive to you. We want to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Whether, whatever it is that we need, Lord, whether we need to be encouraged and built up, whether we need a bit of a challenge, Lord, whether we need to be affirmed of your love again this morning, please would you be preparing us now. Help us to lean in and focus on what you want to say to our hearts this morning in Jesus' Name. Okay, so you want to hear the seven Ps, right? Come on, this is awesome. John, John shows us here how the gospel gives us a new pedigree, provider, protector, power, perception, passion, and practice. Okay. <laughs> okay, pedigree. Let's, okay, we, we really need to get going here. Um, so you know what pedigree means. Pedigree is all about where you've come from, who your parents are, and whether this is a good or a bad thing. Some of you know that we've got a French bulldog called Ramos. Okay? And apparently Ramos has a really great pedigree, which is very hard to believe if you, if you look at him. You know, he has a face that even his mother, I don't think, uh, would have loved. But Ramos was a very expensive dog that, you know, very grateful that we got given him. You know, I don't know where I'm going with this. This is a bad illustration. Pedigree. Okay, you know what pedigree means? It's where we're from and whether this is good or bad. So let's just take a look. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. Um, you know, not quite going in the order of the text uh, that we read. So let's just start by looking at verse 19. We know that we are from God. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, you belong to God. You're part of His family. And so if someone asks you, where are you from? Actually, the deepest possible answer is that I am from the living God. I belong to Him. And so do you struggle with identity issues? I'm sure you do. I know many of you do. I speak to you guys. And so, friend, I just want to say to you again, you are from God. You are from God. Not only that, it gets better. Verse 20 we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. We've been united to the Father and the Son. We've been kind of swept up and grafted into the very life that the Trinity has existing in itself. And so I don't know whether someone has hurt you deeply recently. Maybe you've been spending a lot of time on social media Comparing your life to that, you know, what is it? Like the best 0.1% of everyone else's life that they actually happen to put on there. And that's also throwing you out a bit. And you, you're kind of doubting whether you have self-worth on the back of that. Again, friends, I want to say to you, you're from God and you are in God. This is something that John wants you to know. This is something that the Holy Spirit wants you to know. This is who you are. Not first and foremost what you do. Not first and foremost what your gender or what your skin color is or what your surname is, what your background is, where you've come from or what someone said about you behind your back. No. First and foremost, this text is telling us that you are a child of the King, that you have been brought from the slum into His palace, given royal robes to wear and His name to bear. 
And this is secure. He has done it. And His power is such that you have no power to overrule His decision. And isn't that good news? Don't overrate yourself on that one. I've got three kids, two of whom we got the fun way and one of whom we got by adoption. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Took some of you a little while. Um, no, I, I won't lie. It's like deciding my kids has crossed my mind from time to time. But, but in all seriousness, is there anything that any one of my children can ever do to stop being a member of my family? My adopted son, we called him Samuel Peter Cropman. My first name is Peter. And our family name is Cropman, and, and, and obviously we gave him that name because we liked the name, but also we're trying to, to tell him something very deep and profound. You got daddy's name. Daddy's first name is part of your name. And our family name is part of your name as well. You belong to us just as much as if you'd come from Carla's body. And this, the reality with us and God is exactly the same. We have a pedigree. We've been given his name. We've been brought into his family, and that cannot be undone. Okay, not only do we have a new pedigree, but we also, through the gospel, are given a new provider. And I know 2020 has kind of tested us to the limits on this, many of us, right? Where do I look to for my needs to be met? I've got people in my community group whose businesses are at breaking point at the moment, and it breaks my heart. But you know, when we're confronted with reality like this year, it kind of confronts us with a pretty uncomfortable heart diagnosis, Right? Where do I end up putting my hope and my trust for my provision? Because, friends, everything or everyone other than God Himself is shaky ground. And actually to come to a place of realizing that is a great blessing. Anything that moves our eyes and our hearts away from depending on created things and rather to depending on the Creator is a good thing. So let's just look now at verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And I think even before I started ex explaining this at all, we need this to kind of land with the you know, unvarnished nuclear force that I think is intended. He hears us and we have everything that we need when we ask him. All right? I think the logic here is that good fathers are aware of the needs of their children and they meet those needs. How much more is that the case with a perfect father? And I think we need to log this. This is God's heart towards us. He wants to meet our needs, our deepest needs. And I think there's a sense in which not to ask him and not to keep on coming to him with all of our needs is to be deeply offensive to him. Because in a sense, you know, it kind of implies that we don't really believe that he's either willing or able to meet those needs. John Newton, everyone will kind of actually know him, even if you don't realize this, because he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And he famously he was a slave trader and then came to Jesus in an incredible way and ended up becoming a very influential pastor. And... Uh, one of the things that he wrote, I just love this, as he was talking about prayer and talking about you know, God as a provider, he wrote this. In terms of the posture when we come to God in prayer, he says this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, 
for His grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. And I just, I just love that. Is, that. is that your view of God? Is that your view of His kind of hard posture towards you? Because if it is, it's going to change how much you do pray and the, fervencies, the fervency with which you pray. Now, I know there's a qualification here. It says, if we ask according to His will, if we ask according to His will, and, and, and I guess, you know, like the, the test is, is that a bit of a letdown for us? It shouldn't be. You know, God is not like a pinata. Do you know what a pinata is? You get those things at, at kids' parties and you, you whack it as hard as you possibly can with a stick until all the goodies come out. So I think sometimes we've got a view of God like that. That's not right. That's a kind of pagan view. That, 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 that would be um, just getting stuff from God by manipulating Him. But there's something far deeper going on. God knows you. He loves you. And God has all wisdom. There's nothing that He doesn't know. And so given all those kind of things, if you wrap them all up together, the kind of only logical conclusion is that His will for you is actually far better than your own will for yourself. He knows you far better than you know yourself. He knows far better what you actually need. And so what that means is that we need to get to a place of trusting Him. Of course, it does imply that we need to know what His will is, His revealed will. I think that's like a preach for another day. But the short answer is read your Bible a lot, okay? But let's just, again, just think quickly about the incredible privilege of prayer. The one who flung the galaxies into their place. And the one who knows every single one of the hundreds of billions of stars by name. He's named all of them. The one who thought up DNA, that guy. That guy practically begs you to come and sit with him and be in relationship with him and listen to him and speak to him. And you know, the, the amazing process is that like, the more we do that, the more that our hearts and our wills start getting intertwined with his. Right? And so I think there's a real sense in which like, prayer is, in the end, a submission of our will to His and saying, Lord, you know better. Please start rewiring me over time. This is not a disappointing qualification, friends. It's not. I mean, imagine God gave us everything that we asked in our foolishness. I still remember Mark Driscoll said in a sermon once that, that he asked his dad for a gun when he turned six. <laughs> And so I guess some of us are like that with God, right? We, we all, we, we're all angry because He said no to us because we're morons. We're asking something moronic. And now we're throwing a tantrum about the fact that He said no to us. But it's no different to the kid asking his dad for a gun when they turn six. I mean, some of you now, on, on reflection, are, are realizing that back in the day, you prayed for, for God to, to bring the wrong person to you as your spouse. Now you're kind of actually grateful that He said no to you, Right? You know who you are. I love the way Tim Keller puts this. He says, God gives us everything that we would have prayed for if we had his perspective on everything. I love that. Okay, so the gospel gives us a new provider. It also gives us a new protector. And I know in South Africa, this is massive, right? I know this is a big deal to many of you guys. Again, I, I, I speak to you guys. I mean, many people are immigrating at the moment, Right? And what is the number one reason that people tend to give why they're immigrating? I am concerned about my physical safety, right? I know there's sometimes other things in play as well, but that's usually like right at the top of the list. I'm concerned about my physical safety in South Africa. And on the one hand, I really do believe that we need to trust God with our physical safety more than we probably normally do. But I think there's something deeper going on here as well, is that we tend to be we, we, we're so concerned and we weight our physical danger so highly, while at the same time we're not at all concerned about or even aware of our spiritual danger. 
and what to do about that. So let's take a look here at verse 18 to 19. Okay, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that's Jesus, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And again, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, so there's the promise of protection, which is of course something that we all want, but protection from what? And it says here, protection from the evil one. Friends, the message of the Bible is that there is an enemy out there who hates you and will go to great lengths with all sorts of different tactics to wreck your life and to destroy your faith and to lead you away from God. And there's an image there at the end of verse 19 that I started to see as I was meditating on and praying through this text. And it's actually a very disturbing image. And I'm guessing most of us wouldn't have picked it up on a, on a first reading. So let me just help us unpack this for a second. What, friends, is the worst kind of person that you can think of? And I think most of us immediately would kind of go probably to something like a child abuser, right? A child abuser or trafficker. Even just, just saying it out loud makes us sick to our stomachs, just the thoughts of it. And one of the most sickening things of a child abuser is what is... is that they need to be incredibly deceptive to be successful in what they do, right? They do whatever they can to earn trust and to lure their victims into their orbits. They'll hand out money or sweets. They'll make false promises. They'll say nice things. They'll do whatever they can to get the child lying in their lap, so to speak, and then they can do what they want. Gross, I know, chilling. But friends, this is what we have here. The whole world is lying in the lap of some kind of sicko abuser and they're not putting up a fight because they've been deceived. They trust him. They haven't realized that he's lied to them and their lives are in the process of getting ruined by him. They don't know that he's led them away from their heavenly father who loves him, who truly loves them, and into his arms, away from, his, away from their father's arms. And so friends, can I just urge us this morning to perhaps you know, weight this with a bit more seriousness. Spiritual danger is a much bigger deal than physical danger. I'm not saying physical danger doesn't matter. But spiritual danger has eternal consequences. But the gospel gives us an incredible good news that our older brother Jesus has come and opened our eyes and, and opened our eyes to, to where we've been lying, who we've been lying with, and leads us by the hand back to his father and our father. Isn't that good news? Okay, how are we doing? Number four, power. Paul the Apostle Paul at various points in his, in his letters talks about the gospel coming with power. And there are all sorts of aspects to that. But the, the one that I just want to double click on uh, this morning is, is something that I think will be familiar to many of us. It's a situation that we feel utterly powerless in and we have no hope of solving without some kind of external power. And that situation that I'm talking about is when someone close to us, someone that we love, is spinning out of control and making all sorts of terrible life choices. And nothing that we say, nothing that anyone else says seems to be able to get through to them. So let's take a look at verse 16 and 17. So, it is hot. <laughs> if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to lay it out straight away. This is a tough text. There was a very tough text last week as well. This is another one. 
I mean, this is a very tough bit of today's passage. But what I want to do, I think it's very helpful when you come to something tough like this, is just hone in on the main thing. The main thing that John wants us to kind of log and realize is that people tend to have this destruction autopilot that they go on, right? Which is very distressing, I guess, for us personally and when we see people around us going on this kind of autopilot. And the Bible is brutally honest about, about this, about human nature, that this is sadly our natural state. And so what, what should we do when we encounter that kind of situation with someone around us? And very simply, John just says we should pray for that person and God will give him or her life. Now, it's not exactly clear exactly what that means by God will give them life, but it's clearly a good thing, right? But I'm not too convinced that this is what we kind of reflexively believe. Right? This is not what we naturally believe. What we tend to kind of go to is we worry, we plead, we fret, spin our wheels. Maybe we ignore the situation. I guess sometimes we gossip. But we don't necessarily pray as our first instinctual reflex. But, but, but John is saying here that it should be our reflex. So he actually said, he shall ask. Basically, like, this is naturally just what will happen automatically. As, as, as soon as you see this kind of thing going on, you'll, of course you'll ask God. That will be your, that, that, that will be your knee-jerk response. And so friends, can I, can I plead that this is something that we actually start doing? You are your brother's keeper. Saying, I'll pray for you is not some kind of cop-out, assuming you follow through, <laughs> right? Spouses, how are you doing on this, on this one? You know, like one of the main purposes of marriage is that God brings two people together so that each person would help the other one with God's assistance be everything that they can. And one of the primary tools that God has given us is prayer. How much are you praying for your spouse? Okay, I guess a little bit of the elephant in the room from this text here is like what on earth is the deal with the sin that leads to death, right? And... To be honest, like there, there are so many interpretations that I actually can't get into it today. We don't have time. And again, this is not necessarily the focus of this text. And it's definitely not the focus of the entire Bible, right? Because if anything, we need more encouragement to pray, not some encouragement not to pray in that situation. And, and, and I think it's also worth kind of logging that John doesn't say don't pray there. He's just saying, I'm not saying that you should pray in that situation. But I think the most helpful thing that I read about how to interpret this is just to recognize that in some instances, people have just made up their minds, right? And nothing that anyone says uh, that is going to get through to them. They're not interested in Jesus. They're not interested in the church. They are completely committed to whatever they're doing to wreck their lives. And I think in those situations, I mean, obviously in all situations, we need to kind of be prepared to hand over to God ultimate results, etc. But like I think in particularly in cases like this, be prepared to give it over to God and kind of say, I'm not going to take it personally and God, I trust you. Okay. Next, the gospel also gives us a new perception. So one of the things that we find out happens at the moment that we put our trust in Jesus is that we get given a new mind and a new perception that comes that, that really changes how we see everything. Everything is affected. So verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so, so that we may know Him who is true. So as you read the gospel accounts, one of the, the miracles that Jesus performs more than once is giving sight to the blind, 
Okay? Even people who are born blind, which is just an incredible thing to think about. But my understanding of the miracles is, you know, absolutely they did happen. They're obviously supposed to, you know, really magnify the, the power of Jesus, you know, put on display. He was the God-man. But there's always something deeper going on as well. There's a, a spiritual lesson that is supposed to be taken from the miracles. And I think the spiritual lesson that's supposed to be taken for all of us as we see Jesus healing people born blind is that we are also the people who have been born blind. We've all been born blind. We're unable to see ourselves accurately, and we're certainly unable to see God, and that's why we end up ignoring Him, and we misrepresent Him, and we get Him wrong. And of course, there's nothing that a blind person, you know, through their own strength and willpower can do to make themselves see again, right? They need outside intervention. They need some kind of miracle. And the amazing good news of the gospel, again, friends, is that this is what is promised. When we hear and respond to the good news of Jesus, He gifts us with brand new eyes. And then He gifts us at the same time with a new mind. And all of that leads to us being able to see all sorts of things with a completely new kind of clarity. And perhaps the most incredible thing that we're finally able to see with clarity is to see Him for the first time. We can know Him. Know Him. And I think many people, as they think about what the Christian faith is all about, they get this wrong. They think that it's mostly about knowing about God or believing in Him. But no, I think what this is trying to say is that there's something far deeper going on. There's something very experiential and tangible and relational when it comes to the heart of the Christian faith. We get to know God in an experiential way. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul writes this book right near the end of his life. And this is almost like a summary of where he's got to in his life. And he says this, I can't, everything, everything is loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else, all my spiritual accomplishments, all the people that I've met, the churches I've planted, you know, the travels I've gone, all of that stuff's rubbish compared to knowing him. And then he goes on to say, and I keep on pressing on that I might know him more. He's like, he's not even satisfied. I mean, the apostle Paul people, the guy who, probably had a deeper insight into the person of Jesus, into spiritual reality than anyone else has ever lived. He's still saying, this is what I keep on kind of going for and striving for, that I might know him. And friends, this is what we get in on. And God starts it by opening our mind, by giving us fresh eyes to see. The same, same John in his gospel says, this is eternal life, that we might know him, right? And Jesus Christ, who he has sent. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, you know, C.S. Lewis, Narnia stories, that guy makes it into my preachers most of the time. Says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. I like that. But it goes deeper, okay? New perception, but also new passion. Our emotions, our value system, our loves, our desires, all of those things are given kind of heart surgery. We are given a new heart, essentially. So take a look again at verse 19. I know we looked at this from a slightly different perspective just now. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay. So, of course, being able to say that we're from God does speak about our pedigree, but look at the kind of contrast that is set up here as well. It's pressing us to where is your core allegiance? Where does your core allegiance lie? What is the ultimate allegiance of your heart? 
Have you experienced the joy of God actually giving you a new heart, which is something far deeper than kind of, you know, pulling up your bootstraps and moral transformation that you may experience by doing something like going to Alcoholics Anonymous or something. And this is far deeper also than just doing some good things. This is about your deepest values being rewired from the inside out. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Something radical has happened. Friends, we're all wired for worship. You know, something or someone will capture your heart and you'll bring your best time and your best efforts to that thing. You'll sacrifice, you'll sacrifice time for it. You'll, you'll, you'll sacrifice resources for it. You'll dream about it. You'll long for success in it. And if it, whatever it is, is not God, that thing will crush you. Money, looks, status, work, popularity, all of these things end up being dead ends as objects of worship. I'm not saying that they're bad things in and of themselves, but they're bad gods, small g gods, right? And so we need something radical to happen to us so that we stop going after all those things that will never satisfy us. We need a brand new heart, and that's what Jesus offers, a brand new heart that makes us alive to God for the first time. God may have caught some of our attention in the past. We might have been a little bit interested in, in Him on the periphery of His lives. But suddenly, if you get a new heart, God becomes this magnificent obsession. And I think this is very different to, what, again, what many people think of when they think of what the Christian faith is at its core. I asked one of my friends this a little while ago, and he said, uh, do unto others. And I think in his mind, that basically meant be nice, be a, be a decent human being. And I think... You know, as soon as you've lived just a little while, you realize that something far, far deeper and far more transformative is required. The gospel gives us a new passion, and finally, the gospel gives us a new practice. Okay, and this, this is last on purpose, because after all the amazing things that we've looked at that God does for us because of Jesus, there is one more, and that is that He changes our behavior and He changes our practices. And the reason I've got this last is that, critically, this flows from everything else. There's real danger in kind of putting this right up front saying, you know, the heart of Christianity is that, you know, it's, it's, it's new behavior. It's a changed kind of life. Paul Tripp has this really, you know, kind of memorable analogy where he talks about, we, we often think that uh, what we can do to please God is, you know, like imagine like a dead fruit tree and then we go and take a stapler and we go and staple some healthy, bright, shiny red apples on, on the fruit tree, on the dead fruit tree and say, you know, woohoo, am I getting it right, Lord? And of course, that's not what's required. What is required is a complete transplant of the tree. And once the tree is healthy again, and once the tree is living again, then just by virtue of what it is, it will bear good fruit. So let's just look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, I don't, I, does this make you like a little bit uncomfortable? Probably should, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> when, I was, when I was preparing, I, I was like, what does this mean? Question, question, question. Because it, it kind of seems at first glance that it's saying that if you have come to Jesus, sin is done, right? No more mistakes, no more messing up. I mean, there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, that, you know, who, who here is going to put up their hand and say, I'm nailing it, 
right? It's, it's not really aligned with our experience at all. But the other problem is that this is completely contradict what John said in chapter one, where he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is he saying here? And thankfully here, like, you know, as you go and read the commentators, they all actually agree that this is not talking about never sinning again. But what this is talking about is not continuing in a pattern and a lifestyle of sin without, give, without putting up a fight. Continuing just to live in it. So it's not talking about having a bad day or a bad week or even a bad month. But what it is saying is that when these things happen to you that I've already described so far, there will be a clear, decisive break in your life. And yes, you'll take two steps forward, one step back a lot of the time, but as you start looking at the trajectory of your life over a longer period of time, there will be a noticeable change in your behavior. Again, this doesn't mean that you suddenly become perfect. What, what, what actually typically does mean is that you now, for the first time, are, are really uncomfortable with the remaining corruption that you notice in yourself and you're committing now to putting up a fight perhaps for the first time obviously with God's help and if that's you and you're dissatisfied with where you're at and you're deeply desirous of changing let me just say that is evidence that God is with you and the logic of the gospel I think is very much be who you are be who you are. God has radically done all sorts of things on the inside of you. Now start walking out what's happened to you already on the inside. So friends, let me, let me just bring this to a close now. I think, I think Doug was saying last week that you know, th- this, this letter is primarily written to those who believe already. And the, and the kind of the beating drum of John's heart as he writes this letter is that he wants us to know. He wants us to know. So So friend, if you believe in Jesus already, do you know these privileges? Do you really know them in the deepest possible way? Are they your bedrock? Are they the foundation of your life that you're trying to build out from? That you belong to God, that you already have eternal life. And that eternal life's not just talking about duration, but you've been wrapped up into the very life of God. Have you logged that you've got a new provider and a new protector with all the resources and all the strength that you could ever imagine? Have you logged that you've been given a new mind and a new heart that leads to new behavior? And, and, and this is what I mean, you know, when, when you see it all kind of tightly packed like this in one place, and you just kind of start thinking about cheapest, you know, like what would my life be like without these things? God really has kind of changed everything for me. When you start realizing that, when you start looking at your life, when you start logging that, when you start seeing where he's taken you from and where he's brought you to, what should come is a deep assurance that you really know, that you really know that you belong to Him and that He has done this for you and He's never going to stop working on you and you're safe and you're secure and I promise you that will change your life then. And friends, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, if you're still on a bit of a journey here, I just humbly kind of say to you this morning that these things are true. You just speak to anyone in, this, anyone in this room this morning, those of you who are watching today, find a believer who's walked with Jesus for any period of time and they will tell you that these things are true. And so I'd just like to humbly plead with you this morning, come to him. Come to him. Every single anxiety that tends to plague us today, I believe, is answered uniquely 
decisively at root by the gospel of Jesus Christ and only by that. So come to him. He's calling you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for um, the magnificent genius of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you so much that you sent Jesus to earth to come and live this perfect life that we could never have lived and then to die on our behalf and in that process reconcile us to you so that all these things that I've been speaking about today can be ours and that we can know that we can know at the very depth of our being that these things are true. Lord, we, we, we're so inclined, and we're going to hear about it next week, I go, we're so, we're so inclined to go after all sorts of terrible substitutes for you. We have such a longing for acceptance, and we have such a longing for provision and for protection. And we need power, Lord, and we need new ways of thinking, and we, 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 we tend to look, our default tends to be that we go after Pathetic substitutes to you, Lord. Forgive us. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Bring us back to you, Lord. Thank you so much that we can pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.